The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, David Dibble, and we'll be discussing four new agreements for leaders and managers. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about David. He is the CEO, a thought leader, author, keynote speaker, trainer, consultant, executive coach, and most notably, a systems thinker. He's written four books, including The New Agreements in the Workplace and The New Agreements in Healthcare. And for more than 25 years, he's consulted and trained in the workplace with a focus on his four new agreements at work, creating measurable and often unprecedented results in half the time of more traditional approaches. For eight years, David worked directly with Don Miguel Ruiz, author of The Four Agreements. And his latest and most powerful creation for the workplace is New Conscious Systems, a mashup of over 34 years of systems thinking, systems-enhanced tools, best leadership and management practices, and universal change management principles. David believes New Conscious Systems is nothing less than a next evolutionary step in sustainable effectiveness for leaders and managers globally. So, David, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So, the topic for today is four new agreements for leaders and managers, and I want to explore this, but there's many listeners who perhaps haven't heard of the original four agreements that were created by Don Miguel Ruiz. So, can you describe the four agreements and how you came to learn about them, and then share the four new agreements you developed for the workplace? Uh, Yes. Well, uh, the four agreements, uh, which were created by uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, um, were actually the agreements that we as students had to agree to in order to work with him. Mm. So I started working with him uh, in 1990, and part of our agreements to work together were that we had to agree to these four agreements. And the four agreements are uh, be impeccable with your word, um, don't make assumptions, don't take anything personally, and always do your best. So uh, this was uh, sort of the beginning of what has become, of course, uh, a much uh, bigger teaching around these agreements. 
uh, Miguel uh, later wrote the book called The Four Agreements, and I believe he sold more than 5 million copies of that particular book right now. And, of course, he goes all over the world um, talking to people about uh, The Four Agreements and other parts of uh, his work. And so um, I, I really believe that having been able to work directly with him uh, over about an eight-year period, was probably one of the greatest gifts that uh, I ever received as uh, a, a person, you know, for personal life and that sort of thing. But I think equally, equally important uh, for our professional uh, life and, uh, and learning how to work um, in the workplace. Beautiful. So and if you just look at those four agreements, I think anyone would, if they think about it, would be, challenge to do that every day to not make assumptions to not take things personally i you know i think we still i still work on mastering those things even though i i read four agreements many years ago so um i find that powerful in itself and if people in business and in their personal lives followed these i think the world would be a better place um so how about the the four new agreements for the workplace well um i uh, when I first started consulting and this was and training, this was back in uh, 1990. Um, I started uh, taking the four agreements into the workplace, and I love the four agreements. Uh, they're, I mean, they're great. They're something that I, I think almost anybody would look at it and go, "Yes, that that makes sense," mm-hmm. and that should be something we should aspire to. But what I found in the workplace was, as much as I love the four agreements, they are not enough. Mm. And so I started looking at what, you know, what else is needed and what are the gaps and what do we need to fill those gaps with in order to create what I would call a real transformation um, at, the, at the level of work and, and in the workplace. And so I came up with four new agreements that uh, in, uh, conjuncture with, um, in conjunction with the four agreements appear to be uh, a really workable roadmap for sustainable change in the workplace. And uh, the four new agreements are uh, find your purpose, uh, love, grow, and serve your people, be a systems thinker, and practice a little every day. And I think you take those four new agreements and you mix them with the four agreements, and we've got something that's proved to be uh, quite useful and um, and actually quite powerful in uh, changing uh, changing the workplace solving problems, uh, you know, making our businesses the way we want them to be. Well, I do want to focus on the systems thinking today, but I would really like to hear a bit about, perhaps let's say you're asked to help somebody find their purpose. So you go into a company and and the man that you're working with a manager and they are maybe just not feeling fulfilled in their work. What, what would be some things you might, how might you help them find their purpose, for example? Well, I believe in uh, much of what um, I've learned uh, in working uh, with Miguel um, in those years, and actually with some other teachers that we've had along the way as well, uh, is that for practical purposes, uh, the human reality is created inside out. And so if we want to uh, change our reality, you know, most people 
we've sort of been trained to, you know, kind of work in the outside world and somehow that will change our realities. Mm. What we see is that if we don't do the inner work, uh, whatever changes we make in the outside world tend to be fleeting um, at best. And so in looking at uh, working with purpose again, uh, what we have found is that purpose um, is actually, it lives um, in the inside world. And so we have to go in and really kind of explore that inner world in order to find, you know, what is our purpose for being here in this particular lifetime? What is it that we are meant to do in this particular lifetime? Uh, What is it that makes our hearts sing? And um, we have a number of uh, tools and and, um, exercises and that sort of thing, which allows uh, a person to kind of quiet you know, quiet the mind a little bit, and actually go uh, inside and begin to explore uh, what might be, you know, their purpose in this particular lifetime and and also what might be their higher purpose for work. So, um, again, uh, normally we would look to start with kind of the inner journey as opposed to looking out in the outside world and say, okay, uh, what is it that, uh, you know, what's my purpose? You know, am I going to maybe move? Most of you might think, well, my purpose is to get rich or it's to get famous or, <laughs> you know, it's to be something like that. But it is, uh, I think in, you know, the 25 years that we've been doing this type of work, I, I have never seen uh, a person's purpose or higher purpose uh, being, you know, to get rich, get famous, uh, you know, get, get stuff in the outside world like many of us have been, uh, you know, trained to believe. So have you ever worked with a manager doing this kind of work and they find out they're in the wrong job and they actually go leave the company? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's, um, it's probably, I, I will say this, um, it is more the exception than the rule that uh, when we're looking at purpose and in particular higher purpose for work, that uh, a person is doing uh, is is finding that fulfillment in their job uh, currently when we when we start doing this work. Hmm. Um, oftentimes, uh, someone will realize in doing this inner work that uh, their purpose for work, their higher purpose for work, um, they are not in that uh, job currently. And then, rather than you know either you know, bolting and, and running off, you know, to do uh, something new, uh, what we would do is to look to build a bridge from what they're currently doing to what they're really meant to do. Because, you know, we do live in a world where you have to pay the rent and you have to take care of the family and earn a paycheck and stuff like that. So um, it doesn't make sense to just, you know, stop and go running off somewhere and, and have to have that learning experience. So we'll look at building a bridge, and that seems to work very well. Uh, we're a person over a period of time can transition from whatever it is they're doing that might not be so fulfilling to doing something that really, really makes their heart sing and uh, really resonates with them. Oh, thank you. So the third agreement for, of the new agreements at work is be a systems thinker. So what do you mean by systems thinking? Well, that's a great question. Um, If we take a look uh, out into the physical universe, what we see is that everything in the physical universe is made up of systems and subsystems. So if you look at the biggest features in 
in the universe, things like clusters of galaxies, for instance, what we see is that those clusters of galaxies are made up of galaxies, which in turn are made up of billions of stars. And then we keep kind of moving down to what um, each of these larger systems is made up of. And you'll come to uh, things like solar systems like our sun and the planets that are orbiting around the sun. And eventually you get down to our planet Earth. And you see that planet Earth is made up of, again, still fairly large systems. We've got ecosystems and weather systems and all sorts of things. And you keep going down, down, down. And what you find is that all the way from the largest things in the universe to the smallest, which we're talking about um, basically at the atomic and subatomic level, that everything is made up of systems and subsystems. And so... That all, everything in the universe works synergistically uh, until we get uh, to where the human mind gets involved with it. And when the human mind decides, you know, how these, how these things are supposed to work and so forth, normally um, it will not, the human mind will not take a systematic approach to trying to create whatever it is it wants to create in the universe, including in the workplace. And so, this is where this is where our systems thinking um, becomes very, very powerful. Because uh, when you begin to think in terms of systems, what you do is you make the systems and subsystems in the workplace visible for the first time. Because for someone who does not think in terms of systems, these systems and subsystems in the workplace are invisible, and ninety-four percent of the results that we are experiencing in the workplace, both good and not so good, are a function of those systems and subsystems. Mm-hmm. And what we've been trained to believe um, as leaders and managers is that people are the source of the results that we experience. And yet, the data is very, very clear um, that that's simply not true, that the systems are really... Um, the source for 94% of the results we experience. So if we want to change something in the workplace, rather than, you know, trying to get better people or get the people to be different or that sort of thing, um, we will be able to see those systems that are creating whatever results it is that we want to change. And um, at that point, we can begin to do something that is actually going to make a difference in the workplace as opposed to cracking the whip or trying to get people to behave in a different way. So it's a totally different way of viewing the world and the workplace uh, in particular, and it's a skill set. So I like learning a foreign language where if you can learn to think in terms of systems, all of a sudden the entire world looks different, very, very different, but it's a much more accurate way of viewing the world than it is uh, viewing it in the way that you basically trained to see it. Well, so can I a couple examples of systems in a workplace. Well, um, let's talk, let's say we were talking about a, a normal uh, manufacturing plant, for instance. Um, if you were to actually look uh, down on the floor at the assembly line or something like that, what you would see is that there are uh, systems. They may be formal or informal, but there are systems in place that are basically creating. Um, 94% of whatever results we're experiencing. So mm-hmm. if you were making, um, I'll make a, let's say that you have a restaurant 
and you're making uh, hamburgers. And uh, someone comes in to the restaurant and they order a hamburger with no onions. And so uh, you deliver, the waitress delivers a hamburger that has onions. Well, the question would be, whose fault is it? And yet, if we take a look and we see, uh, we can look at it in terms of systems, what we'll see is that there's a 94% chance that the reason that hamburger showed up with onions instead of no onions, which was ordered by the customer, um, it's created by the systems in which the waitress works, the cook works, other people who are in the restaurant work. And if we wanted to set it up so that people got what they wanted each time they ordered it, we would have to go in and change the systems that guarantee that a certain percentage of people are going to get onions when they order it without onions. Yeah. And and I, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I could see that it's not such a catastrophe, let's say, in a restaurant with onions on a hamburger, but in a lot of systems, that could be hugely expensive or dangerous. Or And so I'd love for you to share a little bit uh, probably a lot of my listeners are aware of how the Japanese created some very high-quality cars and came into the American market for years and um, still have a strong presence. And you talk about this um, in some of your writing and relate it to the work of Dr. Deming. Can you share a little bit about that history? Because I think it would probably put into context for people who are listening or not and don't know why there are so many great Japanese cars in our market. <laughs> Well, um, back in, um, back right after the World War II, uh, in 1950, a man named W. Edward Stemming, uh, he was a, a very, very smart guy, uh, and he had mastered this systems thinking, and he had learned how to apply systems thinking in the workplace to basically create ever higher quality products and services at ever lower cost. Well... That sounds like a pretty good thing uh, for the workplace. And he was asked to go over to Japan after the war, and uh, he was going to, you know, try and help the Japanese out a little bit while he was over there. He actually sent him over there to work on the census, but while he was over there, of course, he was talking to uh, the Japanese industrialists about how they might start to remake the country and their economy. And anyway, he ended up with the top 200 industrialists in a room, um, one day, and uh, he told them that if you will follow uh, my systems-based approach to recreating your economy, you will become an economic superpower within a generation. And, of course, they all thought that was ridiculous, but they didn't have anybody else that was trying to help them, so they all decided, well, they would do what he said. And so he taught them um, how to take a systems-based approach in uh, building their businesses back up and doing that sort of thing. And uh, you might uh, not recall, but some of your listeners might recall, uh, back in the late 60s, the Japanese first started exporting automobiles to uh, the United States. And the first automobiles were awful. I mean, they were, so, they were incredibly low quality. Uh, they were tinny. They were, they were a laughingstock. Uh, you know, Japanese meant, you know, basically like tin cans with wheels when they first mm. came over. And then um, over the next uh, roughly 10 or 15 years, all of a sudden, um, the uh, 
weapons-based quality and manufacturing uh, techniques that the Japanese were uh, taking uh, started to take hold, and the quality got better and better. And, of course, um, today, uh, you know, the Japanese quality is still the finest um, in the world. And um, it's like that for pretty much anything else that uh, the Japanese produced using these systems, this systems-based approach, whether we're talking about electronics uh, or whether we're talking about uh, watches. or I mean, it's pretty much anything that's produced this way because it creates ever higher quality products and services at a lower cost. And if you're not using a systems-based approach, it's tough to compete um, against that. And so what Deming really gave all of us, because he also was very happy to share this with American managers and leaders, was a, uh, a much better uh, theory for running our, running our businesses and also a much better management and leadership theory. So um, that was sort of, you know, Deming's story. And even when he came to the U.S., I mean, he, he came here in 1980 and started working with Ford, who at the time was ticketed for bankruptcy. And uh, he was able to uh, take them from uh, a company that many did not think was going to make it uh, to becoming, uh, even today, it's still the strongest of the big three uh, American car companies. And the first car they, that they ever created or ever built using his techniques was uh, the Ford Taurus. And, of course, the Ford Taurus became the best-selling car uh, in America for a while. And uh, it was an incredibly high-quality car compared to you know, its uh, American counterparts. Are any of the competitive car companies looking at this approach and thinking, well, we might want to try that? Oh, yeah. They... They all, uh, at one point or another, have done some of this type of work. Otherwise, they would have been out of business long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that, um, you know, this is really a management and leadership theory. And what most of the American leaders and managers have done is they have tried to take this, uh, this theory and put it uh, basically on top of their old management theories and, of course, it doesn't work nearly as well when uh, you're, you're not really using it as, uh, as the way that you manage and lead. It's used more as a program. And so mm-hmm. these programs, you know, have different names. At one time, it was called Total Quality Management, and then it morphed into Six Sigma, and then it was Lean, and then it's Lean Sigma, and it's all these things. But basically, uh, American management, management in general turn these into quality programs which they aren't at all. They're management and leadership programs. And, of course, you don't get nearly the benefits when uh, this is being uh, driven by the quality department rather than by top management. Well, so what do you think it is that makes managers resist this approach completely? Well, the same thing that makes change so difficult for human beings in general. Uh, What happens... uh, Probably your listeners will, if you take a look at uh, in your own lives, you'll see that, you know, change is not easy, whether it's personal change or professional change. And that's because the mind, which is, you know, the inner part of us that's basically creating each of our, uh, of our realities uh, out there in the world, um, it tends to filter anything unlike itself. And it tends to be actually a little bit fearful of anything outside itself. 
Um, and so this is just a natural part of the mind. It's not good or bad. But this is the same thing that uh, American leaders and managers run into. Uh, they got to be, you know, let's say a CEO of a company because they were good at what they did. Uh, maybe they got lucky or maybe they, they're, they're just, you know, very proficient. But what, whatever it was, it got them to the top. Uh, when something new comes in, uh, their minds naturally reject it mm-hmm. as being, um, you know, something that is outside of what had created their original success. And so um, that's just a natural thing that happens. And, uh, of course, the more success they've had, generally the more resistance there, there is to change. And this is one of the reasons why you see it is so difficult to create change in some of these uh, large old-line companies. Their uh, mindsets, not only of their top people, but of many of the people uh, that have been in these companies for years and years, are just so entrenched. But without a change in the mindset, you can't change the company. It's just that simple. So one of the things that I'm wondering, because it seems like the managers delegate this to this process, say, in your example, to the quality department. And then I had the pleasure of taking your one-day workshop a few weeks ago, which was great. And my sense is, too, that using a systems approach might take some power away from the leaders. Is that true? Well, I, I think it's, it's true, yes and no, um, in that, it's, if you really want to get the benefits of uh, this different, uh, very different, you know, leadership and uh, management theory and the use of the tools, then it literally has to be driven down to where the work is being done. Mm-hmm. And this can be very threatening, uh, particularly for uh, middle managers, because little, middle managers have been... They've been, you know, told that they're supposed to have the answers and they're supposed to tell the, the workers what to do and, and that sort of thing. And yet, a uh, systems-based approach um, says no, that actually what you want the power to be in the hands of uh, the people. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, they can make whatever changes are necessary in a systems-based way to improve their processes, uh, to improve the quality of their products uh, and their services, uh, and also to lower their cost, because it's a very interesting thing that the higher the quality, the lower the cost. And, of course, mm. the natural thinking, you know, for most people in a leadership or management position is that the higher the quality, the higher the cost. And it's just the exact opposite. So um, this, is, this is something that uh, if you want to get the full benefits of it, you would want to drive it all the way down and basically turn over a lot of this uh, decision-making and so forth. Uh, to uh, the people on the floor once they're trained in how to do it and that sort of thing. And, of course, then you have to ask yourself the question, middle manager, saying, well, what do you need me for? And and that's really the truth. Why do we need them? Because Mm -hmm. we've also found that the flatter an organization can be, uh, the better it runs, the more efficient it is, uh, the more success uh, that the organization and the people who work there experience. So Mm -hmm. all these layers of management and so forth, um, they have really been put in place basically to cover up flaws in a flawed system in the first place. 
Oh, that makes sense. And we are up in a break. I can't believe we're half done here. Uh, just let me reintroduce my guest today is David Dibble. And we are talking about the four new agreements for leaders and managers. You can learn more about David's work and all of his books at www.newconsciousystems.com. And we'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here. I'm back with my guest, David Dibble, and we are talking about the four new agreements for leaders and managers. And before the break in the first half of the show, we introduced the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, um, Be Impeccable With Your Word, um, don't make assumptions, don't take things personally, and always do your best. Great rules for living. And then David introduced his four new agreements for the workplace because we really just need to think on a systems level at this point. Um, and they are find your purpose, um, love, uh, 
and or what is it the the second one for work is <laughs> I wrote notes here but I should love have this serve, love grow and serve your people grow it thank you and third is be a systems thinker four is practice a little every day and so and we talked somewhat about why this is difficult for managers and some examples of places where systems thinking has been used so you did mention something too before the break about. 94% of the results are created by systems. Can you, and so I think, of this, you, I think you call these systems principles. Can you share a few other of these? I think people are familiar with the 80-20 maybe. Expand on that and a few others that you uh, come up with. Yes. Well, there's only four, um, but they're, I think, very, very important and fundamental to uh, systems thinking and doing good systems work um, in companies. The first is 94% of the results are a function of the systems, not the efforts of people. So we talked about a little bit about that in the first uh, half of, uh, of the interview today. Uh, the second one is 80-20. And my guess is most of your listeners may be familiar with 8020. Um, and what this says is that 20% of the variables create 80% of the results, both good and not so good. And what it really means is that we should only work on the critical 20%, whether no matter you, your people, whatever, everyone should identify the critical 20% of the variables and only work on those. There's no time to work on all the other stuff. So, 80-20. And uh, people want to test this for themselves. They can go look in their closet, and they'll see that 80% of the time, they wear 20% of the clothes in their closet to make a list of all the restaurants they go to. They'll see that 80% of the time, they go to 20% of the restaurants on the list. So, 80-20 <laughs> works in a, lot of, in a lot of areas of life. And the next one is called 1585. And what Deming told us, is that if we get the first 15% of the system working correctly, the other 85% will follow. So we really want to focus our attention on the first 15% uh, of the system when we're doing systems work. And then the last one's called 50-50, and this is, uh, this is one of my own principles. And basically it's this, that if we're going to do sustainable, really good systems work, if we are going to grow really, really great companies and organizations, we have 50% of our effort has to be working on the systems, and 50% of our effort has to be working on growing the people. And we have to do both. It's an integrated whole. You can't do one or the other. You have to do both. So mm-hmm. 50-50. So those are the, the four principles that we use in doing our systems work. Oh, well, thank you. So that sounds like the approach and what I would, or, you know, some rules to think about. Um, So now I'd like to talk a little bit about when we're not doing it and what happens. And in a response, you wrote to a recent article entitled six reasons CEOs feel powerless to drive sustainability into their companies. You commented, quote, meaningful change always boils down to systems and mindsets. The Nobel Prize-winning law of dissipative structures is clear that systems that resist change in a changing environment become even more complex and even more stressed. 
When stress levels reach critical mass, the systems, regardless of size or resistance to change, fly into chaos and reorder over time into systems that are completely different than their predecessors and can handle both the stresses and the new environments. So what do you mean by this? Because I work in a company where I see a lot of stress. Um, Other people I know are stressed at work. Is this kind of what's going on if, the, if they're resisting change? Can you talk more about the, the law of dissipative structures and how people might be able to relate this to where they're working? Well, the law of dissipative structures, um, again, uh, this was a law that was discovered by Ilya Prigogine, and he won a Nobel Prize uh, for this discovery in 1977. And what he said was that, again, everything in the universe is systems and subsystems. And he says that when a system resists change in a changing environment, it requires more energy for the, for the system to stay the same. So more energy inputs for the system to stay the same. But it can still only dissipate the same amount as it did prior to those inputs. And so that stresses the system. And as it continues to resist change in a changing environment, it takes ever more energy coming in and ever more complexity um, to stay the same until finally the stresses are so great that it goes into a process called reorder. And reorder basically means that this, this, this very highly stressed system now flies into um, a term or a period of chaos and then later reforms into a completely different system in which the inputs to the system and the outputs to the system, uh, again, are the same, and the system becomes stable. So if you want to look at systems that are coming close uh, to this uh, reorder process, uh, all you have to do is to look at stress levels. And if we take a look, for instance, uh, just you know, out into the environment today, economic environment, or or it could be uh, some of these big systems that uh, we know are are very, very stressed and certainly not working where they should anymore, I think we could make a case that some of these systems are close to the reorder phase. Um, Mm -hmm. Systems that come to mind are things like our education system, healthcare system, um, IRS, our Congress, uh, the way it's being run right now is... Uh, very, very highly stressed and almost dysfunctional. And the thing that's important to realize about this is once it heads toward reorder, nothing can stop it. Nothing. Not, uh, you know, you don't get to vote on it. You um, you can bring out the Army and the Navy and, uh, you know, uh, that makes no difference. There's no power on the planet that can stop it. Because it's a natural, it's a natural principle, and it's going to work in spite of whatever we think about it. So yeah. uh, we have, yeah, we have a lot of systems right now. I feel that are probably getting close to this reorder thing, and uh, and even some of our, you know, our business systems, you know, this old mindset, you know, top down hierarchy, and uh, you know, cracking the whip, and you know, doing all this kind of stuff, uh, short term, short term gains, and so forth like that. I think that that system itself is also uh, very highly stressed and heading toward uh, big changes in the very near future. Yeah, it feels like that there's a lot of, in those kinds of companies, there's a lot of fear being created, which then cuts down on productivity. And um, the analysis that I've been doing lately shows that 
and I mean, this isn't a mystery. There's a lot of documentation now that our people, our employees are our most valuable asset because they have to be highly trained today with complexity and use of technology. And if they are all stressed, the system can't be sustained. And yet I think that's where if a manager can't or, or a CEO or a leader can't take a systems approach and, and create the changes that are needed, they can't survive. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Well, it's so interesting. One of the things, this is not a part of um, the law of dissipative structures, but it's something that we have found uh, in working out in the workplace, is that the stresses that are created in these systems get passed on to the people who have to work in those systems. And we can actually go in and determine with a high degree of reliability where we will get the most return for doing systems work by measuring, measuring stress levels of uh, people who are working in those particular systems. It's, um, and, the, and the other thing, too, is uh, these stress, whether it's uh, in the systems themselves or whether it's been transferred to the people who have to work in those systems, those stresses continue to exist when we leave the workplace, and we end up carrying them home, and then we carry them to our families. You know, um, life, there is no you know, differentiation between one life and another. It's all life. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is that, you know, these really almost dysfunctional systems that many, many people are working in, uh, particularly in, uh, you know, Western um, types of, uh, you know, economic and, and, and workplace environments, um, they're not sustainable. They're clearly not sustainable if you look at trend lines. And what that means is that these big companies where, you know, people uh, sort of go there to pick up a check and die, uh, they are dinosaurs. And they are just waiting for the weather to change. <laughs> <laughs> really? Exactly. Well, and I think that one of the problems is that a lot of companies take this very short-term approach. You know, the, the quarterly earnings reporting is is creating a system where, Companies take short-term gains, so they really don't even care a lot of times about the long-term survival of the company. Have you seen this and as a challenge to this kind of thinking? Well, it's, it's actually, you know, it's more than a challenge. It's impossible. If uh, you go into uh, a company and the company, no matter how good or bad it's doing, you go into a company that has one of these short-term mindsets and you realize that all the rules, regulations, and boundaries, and mindsets, and everything that are in place um, are in place basically to keep that thing together. And um, if you go in and you're going to try and create change in one of you know, with that type of a mindset, I might call it a corporate mindset, um, you might as well just go do something else because it's not possible. Again, all change is systems and mindsets. And if you can't change the mindset, you can't change the company. It's that simple. So in a lot of cases, it might mean replacing the managers, um, which actually leads to a question I'd love to ask you in your book, The New Agreements in Healthcare. You describe an experience of working in a hospital using this approach. Would you share that story and how that worked and, and you know what, what actually happened uh, uh, throughout that process? 
Well, that was a really, uh, I think, one of the really amazing stories that um, I've run into in my 25 years, you know, of, uh, working in the, in the workplace of consulting and training. Um, I think it was around 2006, I got a call from uh, a hospital. It was about a, a 50-bed hospital in uh, New Mexico, and they had had really good luck uh, taking the four agreements into their chemotherapy department. They really improved their patient satisfaction and outcomes and everything. It was really beautiful. And then they tried to take the four agreements into the hospital as a whole, and it fell on its face. And so they called me, and they knew I had done a lot of work with the four agreements, and they asked me if I might be able to help them. And I said I could, but I'd also want to have them take a look at the four new agreements because I thought, you know, we could really do some good work there at the hospital. So uh, I went there. And they had some really big long-term problems that they'd been facing, and so they naturally wanted to start working there. And one of the places was their wellness center, and their wellness center was kind of a stepchild. It was a few miles away from the main hospital, and it was just it was doing terrible. <laughs> they had Press uh, Gaming, which does these types of measurements, that had measured uh, patient satisfaction at the wellness center. Uh, 272 like-type organizations or centers and uh, facilities in the U.S., they were numbers two seven satisfaction. They were the absolute worst. <laughs> wow. And, I, you know, it's really saying something when you can be, you know, last out of 272 similar <laughs> facilities. But they were. They had, they had somehow managed it. And so we were starting at rock bottom. And uh, we went in there, and I was working with a guy named uh, Brian Cunningham. He was our director and he was really worried because, you know, he was on the hot seat. And I told him, don't worry, we'll get it fixed. And um, I said, and you, you know, along the way, you can learn this. And I said, if you can learn this, I said, you can become a really good manager. And I said, later on, you know, you could maybe be a, uh, you could be a CEO. And he laughed. He said, well, my long-term goal is to be a COO. He wanted to be in, in operations and stuff like that. I said, well, don't discount being a CEO. I said, that's where the power is. And, so forth. Anyway, we we did get the wellness center turned around in one year. We had it up in the 96th percentile for patient satisfaction. We got it from losing money to making money. And so Brian became a bit of a hero. And when I left, which was about 14 months, so I was there at the hospital, um, we'd gotten the whole hospital turned around. And Brian asked me, well, what what should I do? You know, and that you're leaving. I said, well, go help, go help uh, people in other departments. I said, you move up. And so he, he did that. He learned it, and he started helping people in other departments using this uh, the four agreements and the new agreements, and um, and he did start moving up, and eventually made it to VP, and we stayed in touch. In the meantime, they had hired a new CEO about, well, I guess it's probably about six years ago, and when he had his own ideas about how things should run and so forth, he had the four new agreements work that we had done. He had his own ideas, and so he started kind of undoing everything that we had done, and uh, the hospital started suffering. And then in 2000, fiscal 2013, now this is a small hospital. It's only 50 beds. Uh, this hospital lost $9 million. <laughs> I never heard of a 50-bed hospital losing $9 million in one year. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. So the board panicked. And uh, they fired the CEO and all the cronies he brought in. And uh, the only one was left was Brian. And so they made him the interim CEO. And um, 
you know, Brian just started reinstituting all the stuff that we had done before. And in this particular case, he had trained a bunch of people on how to do this, and these people were still there for the most part of the hospital. So he just moved them into these vacant leadership roles. And in 11 months, he took this little hospital from a $9 million loss to a $1.1 million gain in 11 months. I've, I've never heard anything like it ever. I don't think it's ever been done before. I could be wrong, but it's just ridiculous. And it's all because, you know, they, basically he was allowed, as a CEO, he was not only allowed to make necessary changes, he was, he was a system thinker, he knew how to do this, he knew how to use the tools, and what it showed me was what was possible when you had the complete support of the board, the CEO, and basically all of the managers, what could be done in implementing you know, the four new agreements. Anyway, it, was, it, it just made my day. That's um, that's an amazing story, and I think the time it took was definitely helped by the fact that everybody had been trained in those systems. But even without that, it sounds reasonable that you could do it like in a year and a half or two years, probably in most businesses, I would think. Oh yeah, um, I mean it's what we found now. Um, I mean, this work that we started uh, that we started doing. I mean, twenty. 25 years ago has now, you know, basically evolved into something that's really almost magical. Um, we can go in and we can create significant changes in months now rather than years. Wow. There's, yeah, it's really, um, I feel like we're just so on to something. Um, and, you know, that's, well, you know this, uh, uh, Olivia, we talked about it. We're really looking at trying to create a movement. Um, an evolutionary movement for uh, leaders and managers with, uh, you know, this new way of being um, in the workplace as it's centered. Mm-hmm. Well, and so to take that even a little step further, because we're both interested in seeing business as a force for positive change in the world, right? Um, I can think of many ways that employees, implementing this in a company could help. So we maybe have about five, six minutes left. Maybe we could explore some of those ways. For example, you mentioned that when a system's under stress, it, people take that home to their families. So if somebody feels loved and gr- is growing at work and feels seen and fulfilled and is, is creating a product or service that they feel proud of, they're going to go home and be a better family member. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, work is a big part um, of many people's lives. And, you know, to, to get up in the morning and be excited, you know, to, to go to work and, to you know, have that feeling of success and camaraderie and, um, and, and, and accomplishment. And, you know, and bringing that home, bringing it home to your family. Um, you know, this, this thing around systems thinking, I believe that systems thinking should be taught starting in kindergarten every single year uh, through uh, graduate school. Because if we did that, the entire world would change. That's true. And as people who come home feeling good about what they're doing at work and understanding these principles then get involved in 
their communities or their PTAs, that this could also have a good effect on changing the schools. Um, we have about two and a half minutes left. Have you worked at all with anybody in the education world with these thoughts or these theories? Well, yeah, uh, it was a while back, but we took um, the uh, superintendent and a number of teachers um, and um, parents and kids through one of our programs, a three-day program. At the end of that three-day program, um, everything had shifted, everything, because they suddenly, the, the teachers realized that, you know, how they were teaching and what they were teaching, um, and how, I mean, it, it had to... Uh, it had to expand. It had to be, you know, different. The parents and the teachers created a bond, so now they were both working together, you know, mm-hmm. to, to help the kids. Uh, the superintendent uh, tried to bring this into the entire district, but was, of course, voted down by um, by the board because they didn't know exactly what it was. And, of course, their mindsets were filtering any anything unlike itself. But what <laughs> we have is... We have a model for the transformation of healthcare, of education, of uh, pretty much everything that is not working the way it really should uh, in uh, in American uh, life as we know it. Well, and your idea of putting it into the school system at a very early age, then those people are going to grow up and really not tolerate anything other than that approach, I would imagine, because it just works so well. yeah, because here's the thing, 94% of the results, if they're bad at the PTA, you know, it's a systems issue. <laughs> yeah, then, really, you know, exactly. pointing fingers, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and they're having these big committee meetings. It's a, it's a waste of time. Well, and we don't really have time to get into the process, but I just want to share that we did do the whole process in one day, and it was so simple. I mean, it's not easy, but it's it's simple. It's simple to get to the solutions. I think the hardest part is the mindset, really, and getting people to trust it and be able to give up the control to allow it to work. Would you agree? I would agree. And if people want to learn more, we're going to do our next one day, February 17th, here in San Diego. Come on down. Let's spend a day. And believe me, uh, it will open some eyes. Great. And again, you can learn more about David's work at newconsciousystems.com. And it looks like we're out of time. David, thank you so much for being my guest today. And I hope you'll come back and visit me again. It will be my pleasure. Thanks so much, Olivia. Oh, you're welcome. So for a full description of next week's and other upcoming shows, as well as access to all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrood, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 